Uh, if you'll join me, turn your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 17. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, there was, a certain, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversaries. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge? His own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be, ver- God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. But surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Let us pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to to come before you to to worship you in praise. We thank you for the words that uh, that you have for us. Uh, bless Jackie and give him give him your wisdom and your guidance and open our ears that we may understand your word. We say these things in your name. Amen. So I want to make sure that um, <laughs> we don't lose sight of our context as we work our way through uh, the Gospel of Luke. So I'm going to back up just a little bit in chapter 17 and remind you that Jesus was answering some questions about the kingdom of God. And the idea and the concept that uh, the Pharisees had was that the kingdom of God meant that Messiah would come, that Israel would be on the top, that everybody else would be uh, somewhere beneath that, that they would finally have their opportunity to rule the world, and they would no longer be under anyone's thumb. And so they saw the exaltation of their nation, but they didn't 
think about the rest of the nations. And Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples about the kingdom and when the kingdom comes, the Bible calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. Why, why would it use language like that? Because for some people it's great. And for some people it's what? Well, why? Because the judges come. And now there's now times there is no more time. Now now is the moment to stand before our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And when we look at those things, Jesus gives several well, through the scripture we have several metaphors that describe for us what this is going to be like. And the metaphors oftentimes will use language about Leviathan. Maybe you guys have all heard that phrase before. Leviathan was a symbol in the ancient world of evil, chaos, all the things that are wrong with the world. So if you would picture Leviathan as everything that's wrong with the world. So when Job is asking, God, what do you, what, where are you in all my suffering and all the things that's going on? God shows up and says, Job, are you able to conquer Leviathan? You, can you catch him? Can you tame him? The, the answer that God's given him is, you can't do it, but I can. And in the Old Testament prophets, scriptures declare a day when God's going to take evil. And he describes it like God taking Leviathan, this great sea monster, killing it, cooking it, and feeding it to the people. What's he talking about? Is it, are we talking about a literal event? Well, sort of. What we're talking about is God's going to conquer evil. It's going to be wiped out. It's going to be gone. There will be no more. It's not going to come creeping up in some hole somewhere that got forgotten. That's the day of the Lord. That's the day when he returns. Now, part of us longs for that day of justice, doesn't it? Part of us longs for the reality when, when, when the, the judge, the judge, will stand over the earth and you can't lie to him. You can't pretend anymore. But there also ought to be a part, certainly in the heart of an unbeliever, that says, I don't know about that day. Because it's a terrible day. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Nobody on that day, none of us are going to be dancing a jig. Because there's going to be, look, every time somebody saw an angel, what happened? In the Bible, every time somebody sees an angel, seems like they fall down, right? For the most part, they get afraid because the next line from the angel is, yeah, fear not or do not be afraid. Now, an angel is infinitely less than the infinite God, yeah? So when we stand before him, when we have that moment before our great God and king, man, that's going to be a moment. Now, there's nothing for us to fear. We've been covered in the blood of Christ, right? Jesus Christ is the one beside us. He's our advocate. He's introducing us to the Father. I love how C.S. Lewis describes it in the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody ever read those books? No? A couple? When you look at the, the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is, the, is this picture of, of God and, uh, and Jesus. But they, as he... As he describes them, the, the, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are looking at this lion as he's coming. And they're saying, oh, well, is he tame? And they say, no, he's not tame. 
but he's good. And the same thing when we consider God. Now, when Jesus was describing this day, when all of evil, once and for all, is going to be abolished, he tells his disciples, he looks to his disciples in verse 22, and he says, the days are coming when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it. And they'll say, look here, look there, but don't go after them. For as the light flashes uh, and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. Now he describes what what that day is going to be like. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Everything going on is normal. They're eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark, the flood came and destroyed them all. You have the picture of salvation and judgment, right? Same thing with Lot. We look at Lot. Likewise, it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from the heavens and destroyed them all. Picture of salvation and judgment, right? Salvation and judgment. Over and over in Scripture, God says He knows how to deliver the righteous and the wicked to judgment. He knows how. God is able to accomplish this. And then he describes it. He says, on that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. Uh, Likewise, he is in the field. Don't turn back. In other words, there's no time. When you see that day approaching, don't take the time to worry about your stuff. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said, Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. I think that's the reference to what I was telling you about. That meal that God says, I'm going to destroy evil once and for all. Book of Revelation describes a similar battle. Now immediately after that, he tells his disciples what they need. So they just heard this news, right? Okay, the kingdom of God's a little different than what we thought, you know, and and uh, there's something about suffering in the middle of it all, and and there's something about us going through a time of suffering and us dealing with difficulty. So it says in verse 18, then he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. Why? Not lose heart. Not become discouraged. So he tells them the parable of the persistent widow. He tells them this parable of this woman who is looking for justice. Now oftentimes, right, we we go on Facebook, we watch the news, we read the newspaper, we want justice. It's a natural thing, it's a good thing, it's part of the image of God, I think, being uh, uh, lived out through God's people, that we have a desire... For what is right, a desire for justice, and she has this. But as we look at this parable, there's a point to the parable. <clears throat> there's a point to both parables that we're going to be looking at. Two things that we see that, that the Lord is saying we need in light of the reality that as we move forward to the eschaton, the end of days, there will be times when we'll want to be discouraged. There will be times when we will want to be giving up. Where we'll want to say, well, what's the point of it all? How's this all working out? This, this isn't 
what I signed on for. And there are two things that he describes to us in these parables that we're going to need. Faithfulness and humility. Those are the two things that the disciples are going to need as they move forward. And there are two things that we're going to need. We're going to need them. We need to understand that as men and women, followers of Jesus Christ, prayer needs to be a priority. And the reality is, prayer is not a priority. It's, it's probably worse in the United States of anywhere. Because the reality is, you don't need prayer. Do you? If there's a problem, you, if you don't have food, you go to the store. If you, if you can't pay your rent, you, you, you get a job. You know, there's things that can be done. There's things I can do to take care of myself. And so we get caught in this trap where we don't use prayer. We don't understand the purpose of prayer. And we don't, you know, we don't fall into prayer. There's off uh, three, four, five different prayer meetings that go on at the church. But why? Why, why would I pray? Why do I want to pray? And, and there's, there's a, these two things are going to come out of it. I need to make prayer a priority. <coughs> So that I can overcome the problem of discouragement. There are so many great heroes of prayer. That, uh, that we want to have eyes to see. I just recently wrote a... a Comparison contrast paper on <clears throat> a couple of guys. One is uh, George Mueller, and the other is Charles Templeton. You guys know who they are? So George Mueller is an amazing guy. He's one of the heroes of prayer. Charles Templeton's a guy who started Youth for Christ, and in Youth for Christ, they hired an evangelist to come alongside and help them with outreaches. You might remember his name was Billy Graham. You guys heard of him, right? Charles Templeton and Billy Graham did crusades all across Europe, across the United States. They went everywhere. But one day, Charles Templeton has picked up a, a Time magazine. He's looking on the cover of Time magazine, and he sees on the cover of Time magazine, he looks and he sees this child in, uh, in, in Vietnam or Cambodia. He sees this child in the suffering that's going on with this child and and he looks at it and he says how can there be a good god if there's suffering like this in the world and he becomes an apostate so an apostate is somebody who denies the faith uh he became an agnostic his last book that he wrote in 1995 was um i don't remember the title now why why I abandoned my my Christian beliefs, something like that, and uh, <clears throat> um, he got Alzheimer's, and I want to say 2001 he died. Compare that with George Mueller, who grew up a, a thug back in uh, in the olden days, a little older, a little further back. And George Mueller, as he grew up, he was drinking by age nine. We had anybody been drinking by age nine? You don't want to raise your hand. A couple of, yeah, a couple of honest people. Been drinking since I was nine. Gambling since he was 14. When he was 14, his mother died. And, it, and he didn't even know about it. He'd been out partying and gambling. 
She died on a Friday. He partied Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, Monday, he comes back home. His dad says, son, get dressed. We got to go. We didn't even tell him what they're going to. He gets up, walks down to the, to the church. There his mom is in a coffin. That's how he knows his mom died. He says, man, if mom can die, I can die. My life's a mess. I need to reform myself. But he would say, reformation without the blood of Christ is not possible. So, so he would try, but he would fail. Try, and he would fail. And his father said, son, you're a good talker. And you, <clears throat> I think we'll make you a preacher. And his son said, dad, I don't believe in God. And dad said, it don't matter. Now, don't take this personal. This is just from his biography. The Lutherans don't care. You can go there. So, I'm just telling you. So he goes to, away to college at a, at a Lutheran school. He grew up in Prussia. So, so he's in Prussia going to this college. And he's, all, he's still doing the same stuff. Taking dad's money, gambling, drinking, partying. Doesn't care about anything they have to say. But he's getting educated. He can speak like nine different languages there's a lot of things that, that, that are happening in his life, but none of them is leading to salvation. And then he meets this guy named Beta. Beta, B-E-T-A. And he, he says, man, I need to reform my life. And Beta, he's a Christian, so I'm going to follow him. But Beta was backslidden. So they just went drinking and partying and doing things together. But Beta felt guilty. So he decided to go to a Saturday night meeting for prayer. And he asked George Mueller, hey, do you, you want to come? George Mueller said, well, what are they going to do there? Well, they're going to pray, read the Bible. And he's like, perfect, I want to go argue with somebody, let's go. So he went. After all his, his years in school now, he'd been in, in school for several years now. He was more educated than every guy in that room. But this is what he said. I couldn't pray like them. There was something about the way they prayed. He went back week after week after week. They answered. He asked. He surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And everything fell apart. Anybody have an experience like that? I gave my life to Jesus and everything went to pot. It all fell apart. He calls his dad. Dad, dad, you're not going to believe this. Man, I'm a believer. I want to go be a missionary. His dad said, I sent you to be a preacher so you could take care of me in my old age. Not a poor missionary. So his dad cut him off. So he gets, he sent him to church, sent him to church, sent him to school to become a preacher. He gets saved. He cuts him off. So he goes to his professor. What do I do? I don't have no money. He said, pray. George prayed. God provided. George prayed. A bunch of American students came that year, couldn't speak the language, needed a tutor. Just so happened that George spoke eight or nine languages. He was able to uh, be an interpreter for him and help him that year that paid for his final year of school. School's done. Man, he's going to go be a missionary to the Jews. That's what he wanted to do. <clears throat> so he's going to be a missionary to Jews. He gets all packed up, ready to go. They, they send him off. What They say, well, you've got to stop off in England first. Why well, I gotta stop in England? I don't want to stop in England. We need to go get about our, 
the work of the Father. No, you got to stop in England. So he's all bitter about this stop in England. They stop in England. They go and they stop in England. And and then it stops in England. The whole thing falls apart. He was grew up in Prussia. Now he's in England. He was supposed to go to be a missionary for the Jews. Now he's stuck in the middle of England. What am I going to do here? So George prayed. Little church said, hey, won't you come be our pastor? Cool. They said, yeah, we can pay you because we charge people to come to church. <laughs> Did you guys know that was a thing? I didn't know that was possible. They charged pew rent. So you paid, whether you came or not. That's how the preacher got paid. And George said, that seems weird to make people pay to come to church. So we're not doing that no more. Well, if we don't do that, we can't pay you. Well, I guess God will have to take care of me. So George prayed. God provided. He uh, put a little box in the back of the church so people could drop their offering there. He said one day he was out of boots. He didn't have no boots no more. It was, his soles were gone. He was barefoot under his boots, but it looked okay on the top. So, so people didn't know it. And he said, man, I needed a shilling for a pair of boots. And so we went to get the, the offering out of the box, see if there was anything there. And the guy looked through it and said, nope, nothing here. He's like, Lord, what are you doing? Oh, wait, there's one shilling. Do you want it now or you want me to leave it here until it grows? He said, I want it now. It's a shilling. So he goes and gets his boots. He goes outside, and as he's walking down the road, in those days they had chimney sweeps. You guys have all seen the Disney movies, right? Where they dance and sing. It wasn't quite like that. but <clears throat> What they would do is they would take a small child, because a small child could fit in the chimney, and they would put him down the chimney, tie a rope around his leg. If he gets stuck, they'd pull him up. And the child was the broom. He was the sweep. He'd go down and clear out the chimney. But the problem was all that coal dust would get in his lungs and they would die. So sometimes they'd pull up a child out of the chimney and he was dead. So they'd just throw him on the side of the road. So George Mueller looked over and saw that. Now nobody cared about that kid. He's an orphan. Nobody cared about him. George looked at him. Now something different happened. George didn't say, how could a good God allow this to happen? George looked at that and said, I wonder if God wants me to start an orphanage. And so he prayed. 72 years George Mueller lived in England. He served God. He took care of 10,000 orphans. Never asked a single person for a penny. He prayed. God provided. Two men. George Mueller... Charles Templeton. One sees pain and suffering, leaves the faith. One sees pain and suffering, becomes part of the solution. What's the difference? Yeah, one of them prayed. And one of them elevated his own reason above God. If God can't explain this to me in a way that I can understand it, then he can't be God. The other, he prayed. So Jesus told his disciples to pray so they don't lose heart. So they don't come, become discouraged. He said, pray. 
pray. George Mueller would say he'd be praying. They'd have all these kids, and they all sitting around the table. It's dinner time. And they all sit down for prayer. And George say, better pray for some food, because we don't have any. No food to feed the kids. So he'd pray. Lord, you said you would be our provider. You said, open my mouth and you will fill it. There's a knock on the door. Milk truck broke down outside. They got milk. <coughs> they want to leave milk at the orphanage before it all goes sour. So George says, sure, we'll take the milk. He goes back to the table, sits down and prays, Lord, I can't eat milk. Thank you for the milk, but we can't eat milk. We need food. Knock on the door. Baker. Baker says, we've been baking all day, and we, we, we baked up a bunch of bread for the orphanage. So we want to give bread. And George Mueller said, God doesn't just give bread. He gives freshly baked bread to the orphanage. That happened to George Mueller 50,000 times. How many times before it's real? 50,000 written down. Prayers he prayed, God answered, brought, delivered. Not always, sometimes a couple of minutes after it was too late. But God was faithful and he provided what they needed. 10,000 orphans he took care of, 120,000 people he educated through his schools, studying religious studies, and countless Bibles he sent in multiple languages around the world. One man who said, God said he'd do it if I pray. So I'm going to pray. 72 years of faithfulness. His first wife died. He did her funeral. He met another woman come alongside him in ministry. He married her. His second wife died. He did her funeral. He had, two, he had four children. Two who died at birth. Two who lived. He did the funerals for each of his children. Don't tell me he didn't know suffering. Every single person in his family died before him, but he remained faithful. Why? Because he prayed. Why do we struggle? Because we think we can take care of it ourselves. Because we don't need to apply what Jesus is laying out for us in his word. It says in verse 2 of chapter 18, he said, In a certain city there was a judge, <clears throat> a wicked judge, neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down. Literally, the word in Greek is so she won't give me a black eye. He starts getting afraid that a woman's going to sock him. So she don't, she, she don't beat me, doesn't give me a black eye with her continued coming. Now what's the point? Parables are all kinds. Parables are comparisons and contrasts. The, the wicked judge, what the Lord is saying is, if a wicked judge will do it, how much more a good God? Do you understand? If a wicked judge will give this woman what she wants because she remains faithful. She's persistent. She don't give up. She don't stop praying. I prayed once, God didn't do it, I'm done. If George Mueller did that, there would not have been 10,000 kids cared for. But Charles Templeton did. Charles Templeton did say, you know what, this is it, it's not working out for me, I'm out of here. One man 
lived a life of faith, one man abandoned his faith. Faithfulness is what is needed in the church. Faithfulness that says, I'm going to be consistent to pray. I'm going to set aside time to pray. George Mueller set aside time to pray. Jesus Christ set aside time to pray. Every morning he rose up early, went away, withdrew himself, and prayed. He prayed. He prayed before he chose the twelve. He prayed before they went into a difficult time as they rode across the Sea of Galilee. He prayed before he walked on the water. He prayed the night that he was arrested. He prayed. He prayed. He prayed. He's supposed to be the example, right? He said, now, you take up your cross and follow. Yeah, that's right. Follow me. So what would that indicate then? I I need to follow him in prayer, don't I? But here's the problem. The problem always comes back to the same thing. The same problem that Charles Templeton had. For Charles Templeton, the world revolved around him. For George Mueller, the world revolved around God. When we say that when we are saved, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He becomes my God and King, right? He, he's the ruler. He's in charge. It was interesting because as I went through Charles Templeton's book, there was all these requests for God to give uh, an explanation. Just like Job. You guys ever, how many read Job? When you get to the end of the book of Job, have you read the explanation God gives? Do you know what it is? Because basically God's explanation is, I'm God. You're not. Job said, you know what, I'm going to be quiet now. Isaiah 55 says it like this. God says, my thoughts are higher than yours. My ways are higher than yours. What does that intimate? Listen, it means this. You and I are finite beings. Yes or no? Do we have all the problems of earth solved? No, we can't even solve the cold. Do we got a cold solved? Give me a pill and my cold go away. We can't do that? How long has there been a cold on earth? Has it been around for a long time? And we don't got it figured out? We have finite knowledge. We don't even understand why we do the things we do yet, do we? We have a struggle comprehending good from evil. We look at something, we think that's good, and then we th- later on we get a little more information, we think, oh, no, that's, that's evil. <laughs> Yet we're going to put God in the docks, and we're going to judge Him, and we're going to say, God, you allowed this to happen, you can't be good. If I sit in the seat of judge, I have elevated myself to God, and I am requiring God to give account to me. Just so you know, in the Bible, that's backwards. God says, I'm above that. I'm beyond it. I'm not evil. I'm good. But we can't always perceive it all. Or can we? And the problem was, in arrogance and pride, Charles Templeton could not understand... How a good God could allow the things he has allowed in history to happen. Maybe you struggle with the same thing. But I would submit this. For you to think you have more knowledge than God does about whether or not something is good or evil is arrogant and prideful. 
And the Bible says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't know it all. But I know someone who does. And he says the most important thing is to trust him. What do you mean? How does that work out practically? Well, if we go back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, Abram, not Abraham yet, he's Abram in Genesis chapter 12, God calls him and says, Abram, I want you to go to a land that I will show you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abram is 75 years old. He's married to Sarai, and they have no children because she's barren. Now, in order for God to make a great nation out of Abram and Sarai, she has to have a child. Yes? At some point, there's got to be a child involved. So, he gives the promise when Abram is 75 years old. The Bible says, Abram heard God and followed. It's okay, I'll go where you send me. Later on, Abram has this great victory. And when he has this great victory, he looks around at all the stuff he got from this victory. And he says, who am I going to give all this to? I don't have an heir. And so God says, you're going to have a child. The Bible says then, Abram, Abraham then, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, did he believe him because when he looked at Sarah's wife, she was pregnant? Oh no, what, what did the evidence show? The evidence showed she was barren. The evidence showed that he was nearing his 90s. The evidence showed that it could not happen. The evidence showed that this is a bunch of malarkey and it's never going to work out. But Abram, or Abraham, believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. When he's 99, God comes to him again. 24 years after the first promise. And he says to him, this time next year. Sarah's going to have a baby. And she laughs. So they call the baby Isaac. Because it means laughter. Abraham believed God when everything around him said this doesn't make sense. Abraham believed God when everything around him said this doesn't make sense. He believed what God said because he believed that God was who he said he was. That's what we call... Fide, faith. Does it have evidence? Sure it does. I can tell you the story of Abraham and we can look at it and go, dang, God showed up. He did have a child named Isaac. He did make a nation out of him. All of the things God said happened. God's faithful. But then I look on a magazine and I see a picture on a magazine and I say, God's not good anymore. God's not faithful. Why? Because I can't see the end. Because I, I can't comprehend what God's done or why God would allow such a thing. Because I can't understand it. I have chosen to elevate myself above God and say, I'm God. Now you give account to me. That will always lead to apostasy. I will deny my faith. Because God, no matter what God does, he can't. He can't give account to me that will satisfy me. But the other day I was on YouTube and I was watching a bunch of videos of guys going out to the Reason Conference. You guys know what the Reason Conference is? The Reason Conference is a conference full of atheists. And so there were guys out there trying to share Christ. And this was the question that they asked each and every one. If I could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt through evidence that Jesus Christ is God, would you worship him? 
Every one of them said the same thing. You know what it was? No. Is the problem evidence? No. Romans chapter 1 says that everyone knows there is a God, but we, sub- we suppress the truth in unrighteousness because our deeds are evil. We like our sin. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that light came, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They like their sin. Has nothing to do with evidence. Our issues with God have nothing to do with evidence. Has everything to do with perception. How I see it. And if I elevate myself over the whole thing rather than God, it's never going to look right. It's never going to line up. And I will always say God is not worthy. But the Bible says, God has declared this, I exalt my word, my promises, the things I've told you above all my name. God wants to be, don't you like to be believed? We got kids here. Kids, when you tell your parents, I didn't do it. Do you want to be believed? (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes parents, we know. That they didn't do it. Huh? Right? Usually right after the beating. And I find out, oh, it wasn't you. Sorry. (laughs) Right? Usually at that point, because we're finite, we're not infinite, because we're finite, we say, well, you did something else you got away with. So that was, that's what that was for. We understand that we want to be believed, right? God wants us to believe him. To believe what he says. He says, you don't want to lose heart, you need to pray. Keep praying. But it didn't happen immediately. Keep praying. Didn't happen in a year. Abraham didn't happen for 25 years. Yeah, if you beat Abraham, hallelujah, when you get to heaven, you'll get a plaque. I don't know if that's true or not. Doesn't really matter. The point of the story is, it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. God wants His people to pray. So the Lord says in verse 6, listen, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry out to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? Isn't God going to bring about justice? Remember, we've been talking about the eschaton, the end of days. Will God bring justice? Absolutely. Will there be justice for every wrong ever done? Yep. There will be. Trust me, if you're standing at the great white throne judgment, and you're watching God judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, they're standing before God, their name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, they're cast into whatever hell is, outer darkness, separation from God, whatever that is, you're not going to stand on that day and go, that, that wasn't enough. I would imagine on that day we would want to be just about anywhere else. Uh, There will be justice. Justice will come. Justice will come for his people, the people that, that haven't experienced it. But why does God wait? Why isn't it here yet? 2 Peter 3 9 tells us. 2 Peter 3 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some 
count or consider slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing, what? That any should perish. Why has it been so long? Because God's not in a hurry for anybody to go to hell. God's not in a hurry. God's long-suffering because He doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That everyone would hear, turn, and live. So it says in verse 8, I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Jesus is saying to His disciples, When I come, will my people pray like this? Will they be praying? Or is the natural state mean we're going to drift further and further away from what a true, powerful relationship with God looks like? Or will my people pray? In Hebrews 10.35 it says, Therefore don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. Anybody found that to be true? Look, our, our walk with Christ is not a sprint. Stop being in a hurry. God is not in a hurry. It's a marathon. In that marathon, are we going to have victories? Absolutely. Are we going to have losses, defeats, at least temporarily? For sure. Yeah. <clears throat> are we going to suffer? For sure. Yeah, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. But God's still on the throne and He promises that He's working it all out for an exceedingly great weight of glory. That's what Paul said. I do not consider this present suffering worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. God's God's purposes above ours, we can't quite reckon and understand, but we can trust. We can trust. That's where Job came to. That's the whole point of the story of Job. Job, at the end of Job, Job says, you know what, God? I trust you. He never got an answer. Why my kids die? Never got an answer. Why did I lose all my stuff? Never got an answer. What he got was God saying, one day I'm going to vanquish all evil. And I'm working all these things out. I just want you to trust me. Believe me. So we come to the scriptures. This is the call that God is saying. When I come, will I find faith? Or will everybody have elevated themselves to judge? Will everybody be banging the gavel on, on, the, on the table and saying, Lord, give me an account. Why did you do this? If I don't get that account, then I'm not going to be satisfied. I'm going to leave. The right-hand man, Billy Graham, did it. If I don't get an account for this, I'm out of here. Which leads us to the next point, right? The first point, we need faithfulness. Faithfully praying, coming to God, consistently bringing our requests to Him. Being men and women who are faithful, who have faith, trusting God and praying. Part 2, verse 9. He also told this parable... To some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. 
One outwardly a very good man, one outwardly a very bad, wicked man. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Did you hear how many times he said, I? I, 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 I. What's the center of his world? Yeah, that's right. He's the center of his world. He's his own God. Everybody look to me because I'm a pretty righteous guy. I got it all together, God. You're lucky to have me on your team. Then he goes to the tax collector. But the tax collector standing afar off. He didn't get in the crowd. He didn't stand where all the people were. He got off somewhere else. He got somewhere quiet, standing afar off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me, the sinner. God have mercy on me. Jesus said, as he looked at these two and their attitudes, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector went down justified. Why? Because God exalts the humble. How was he humble? He stood before God and he said, Lord, have mercy on me. I don't, I don't always understand everything. I don't always know how everything's supposed to work out. I don't always see how all the dots connect. But I know you are the one who holds the key. So have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I fail. I don't understand. I don't always comprehend. I can't always connect the dots. I don't always hit the mark. Isn't that what sin is? Failure to hit the mark? Missing the mark? He said, Lord, have mercy on me. He comes before the Lord in humility, not in arrogance. In humility, he looks to God and he says, God, have mercy on me. Forgive me of my sin. I I don't comprehend. I don't always understand. There's a concept in theology called the noetic effect of the fall. The Bible tells us that in Genesis, man was fallen in the garden, corrupted in Genesis chapter 6, rebellious in Genesis chapter 10. It is the fall, corruption, and rebellion that is the problem with mankind. We don't think that affects our reason? Really? You don't think the, the fall of man affects our reasoning? You don't think the corruption of man affects our reasoning? You don't think the, the attitudes within man affects our reasoning? And that's arrogant. No, I'm far above that. Wow, you make one. We are broken, but we find our wholeness in Christ. And then once we find our wholeness in Christ, to reject that wholeness because we think we know more, that's not arrogant. Do we got to go back to verse 1? In the beginning, God? Yeah, if we start there. Once God's in the equation, what's impossible? If nothing is impossible once God's in the equation, 
then is it not possible that the event I'm looking at, the thing I'm struggling with, that God knows what he's doing there, even if I can't possibly even comprehend in any way how that could be good? Do we really want to sit in judgment of God? I have found one thing to be true of every single atheist I've ever talked to. They are all mad at God. Everyone. My mom died of cancer. I saw, and I'm 90, I won't say 100%, but high 90s. It is some event in their life, some family member, some point of suffering that they can't comprehend. And I don't want to cheapen the suffering by saying, well, here's what God was doing, because I don't know what God was doing either. I just choose to trust Him rather than reject Him. I choose to be faithful and pray. I choose to humbly kneel before God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because I can't understand it. I don't know how it all works. But I believe you. I want to be like Abram who looked out and said, why do I want to leave this place? I got a house. I got my, I got my family all around me. Why would I leave? The Bible doesn't say God said it twice. I don't know if he did. God just said, Abram, go to a place I'll show you. And Abram looked around and said, okay, I believe you more than I believe all the stuff I can see. For we walk by faith, not by And so he went not knowing where he was going. Isn't that what Hebrews 11 says? He went not knowing where he was going. By faith. Hebrews 11 says, Sarah conceived the child because she counted him Abel who had promised. Even though her womb was dead. She said, I trust you. I don't know. I just trust you. Making that choice. That's what being a faithful believer in Jesus Christ is all about. It's not faith despite evidence. I hate when people say that to me. It makes me irritated. Okay, let me tell you why. Evidence is data. You guys understand? Data needs interpretation. It's not faith despite evidence. It's faith despite your interpretation of the evidence. It's faith despite an unbeliever's interpretation of the evidence. Because he takes his worldview, his glasses, he looks at the evidence and says, this can't be God, this is no proof that God doesn't exist. I look at the exact same evidence and I say, wow, there is a God. Why? Did the data change? No, data doesn't do nothing, it just lays there. It lays out in the middle of the desert in Israel until somebody digs it up. And then when they dig it up, what, what, what would you look, you look at it and you look, just like out here, we dig up an arrowhead. Do you know the story of the arrowhead? Probably not. I don't. I just know. Look, an arrowhead. Data. Arrowhead. Interpretation. What does that arrowhead mean? You guys understand what I'm saying? So people say faith is, that's just faith despite the evidence. It's not faith despite the evidence. It's faith despite your interpretation of it. Why can one set of people look at creation and see design 
And someone else look at it and see design and say, but we don't need a designer. Right now, I, I just was watching Richard Dawkins on a video say that something came from nothing. Those exact words. And the people in the audience thought he was telling a joke. They started laughing. And if you know Richard Dawkins, he's a grumpy British guy. So he didn't think it was funny. What are you guys laughing for? Well, I'll tell you why they're laughing. Because that's dumb. You're a smart man. That's dumb. Something didn't come from nothing. Data doesn't interpret itself. People do. Agreed? I have faith because of the data. My interpretation of that data is God is bigger. He is able. I choose to believe His promises in and through it all. Verse 15, they go on. <coughs> so, I know you think, what does this have to do with anything? Sit tight, you're about to find out. Now, they were bringing even infants to Him that He might touch them. And the disciples saw it. They said, knock it off. They're bringing all the little babies. They're the babies. They're bringing little babies to Jesus, asking them to bless them. So he put his hands on them and bless them. If I'd have been there, I'd be dragging my kids by their hair. You're going to get touched by Jesus. <laughs> my kids need touched by Jesus more than anybody else's. My kids were PKs. You know what that means? Yeah, look in the front row. My kids ain't here. They're listening on computer right now. So I'm going to get a call later. About how wicked I am bringing them up in church. And I'll get yelled at my wife by my wife later, so I'm going to stop now. <clears throat> However, hey, they need to be touched by Jesus. They're bringing them to be touched. But, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like these little children won't enter. What were those babies doing to receive? <laughs> they just come into Jesus, right? Do they, does, a, does a child have it all figured out? How many of your children have come to you and said, why is the sky blue? Some of you may be science guys who can tell them, I have no idea why the sky is blue. So I would fall back on my ultimate authority. You know how to tell where somebody's ultimate authority is? Their argument becomes circular where their ultimate authority is. So when I say, the sky is blue because I said so. <laughs> I am the ultimate authority, right? That's what I'm telling my kids. They don't understand that, do they? Nope. But they might go to school and say, the sky's blue because my dad says so. <laughs> I'm just telling you. The other day I had a question from a kid. He said, he said if, if everything that begins to have a cause, or everything that has a beginning has a cause, who caused God? So I gave him an answer. And then <laughs> he shook his head. What? Was, were you speaking English? Let me try again. If everything that begins has a cause, and God doesn't have a cause, what's that mean? God doesn't have a beginning. That's what we call eternal, or infinite. 
See, infinity is kind of a mind-numbing concept. Is there such a thing as infinity plus one? No, how can it? Then it's, it's infinity. It's forever. It goes everywhere in every direction. It's forever. Well, when I have this argument with kids, you know what they tell me? I, I, I say it can be infinity plus one. Then another one says, I say infinity plus two. Uh, another one, I have infinity plus three. And all I know is, none of you understand infinity. It's okay. Do they have to understand it? All they have to do is trust, right? All I got to do is trust the one who does know. Is there one who does know? The Bible declares that God's knowledge is infinite. My knowledge is not. But God's is. So can I be sure? Can I be confident? Yes, because he knows it all. I can trust him. So what is it that he's asking me? What what does he want us to glean from this? Last two things. I will trust the Lord to fulfill his plans and promises even when I don't understand how it all works out. That's what he's asking. Pray. Don't lose heart. Be faithful. Pray. Don't lose heart. Be faithful. Second, I don't deserve God's mercy or forgiveness. So that puts me in a position of humility, right? Pride can demand. You will forgive me. How's that work when you do that in the world? Does that work? It doesn't even work with three-year-olds. The other day, I had my grandson over at the house, Owen, who is in the, I don't know what, terrible period. <laughs> and, and so I'm looking at him and I'm trying to think of how I can get him to do something that he clearly doesn't want to do. So I got away with it one time. I'm like, I know, I, I want him to go throw that away. So I said, Owen, don't throw that away. He walked right over to it, picked it up, and went and threw it away. I was like, oh! <laughs> oh my gosh, I have solved it! Yeah, the rest of the day I tried it, never worked again. Never worked again. I think he figured it out. We have to recognize we don't deserve it and we can't demand it. So we come to the Lord humbly. Right? In humility. We come to the Lord to be faithful, to trust Him even in things we don't understand and to walk humbly before our God. He knows it. And I can trust Him. There are so many incredible answers and feats that that men and women of God have accomplished over the centuries. Did you know this? I didn't know this, but as long as I got two minutes, I'll tell you. Um, George Mueller wasn't the first guy who did that. A guy named Franck. He did it for, and his, and his, he did the same thing with orphanages. God fulfilled his purpose, you know, answered his prayers, took care of him. And his testimony lasted 200 years. <clears throat> and when George Mueller heard it, he said, if it worked for him, it'll work for me. And here we are still talking about him. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. The same things you read in the Bible, they can still happen today. 
They happen in the heart of a man or woman who is completely submitted and surrendered to Christ. Who is faithful and who is humble. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time and we can study your word, Lord. We thank you for the opportunities that you give us. God, I pray that it would find a fertile, fertile soil within my heart. Got a place where the seed can take root and grow. That I trust you, that I believe you, that I hold fast to your word. That it is the word of God that is my ultimate standard, my judge of truth. So in the end, I say, because the Bible says so. I trust you, God. I put my hope in you. I humbly kneel before you, God, because I need mercy from you every day. I need forgiveness for my hard heart. I need forgiveness for my bad attitudes, Lord God. You know all of that stuff. And you want me, God, you want me to be a man of prayer. You want me to wake up in the morning just like Jesus did and pray first. You want me to pray about my decisions and the things that are coming up. You want me to seek you first. And all these other things will be added unto me. But first you want me to pray like a woman who won't let go of the idea before the judge and goes until she has justice. You want persistence in prayer. You want endurance in my life. You want faithfulness. God, I pray that you would draw us to that place of faithfulness, wanting to step out and be the, the man or the woman that you want us to be, God. To trust you, even though maybe I don't have all the answers yet. I know someone who does. And I won't elevate myself above you, God. You are the king. You are the judge. You are the final voice. And I choose you. God, I pray that you would move in this place. God, call us, draw us to you, men and women, to be faithful. So that when the Son of Man comes, he finds his church praying, being faithful being humble ready for the kingdom like a little child and on that day and every day between now and then we will give you all the praise and the glory for it in Jesus name Amen